salvation. Much of the future is laid out. Sailor read verses written 750 years before Christ walked the earth where Christ himself is speaking and he says, is there any other God like me? If so, let him lay out the future before it happens. So when we go into the Old Testaments, God is about a thousand for a thousand so far and there are about that many more to be fulfilled. We get into the book of Revelation and the future told in advance about the things leading up to the return of Christ. Um, much of them taught in the Old Testament as the, Paul is the only one who teaches on Christ coming for his church. We will find exactly in Revelation where Christ comes for his church. The symbolism and the things that will be happening in, for example, the European Union are talked about in the Bible um, about 700 years before John wrote Revelation and also they're talked about in Revelation and we could take pictures of and show things throughout Europe that are exactly as Daniel wrote that they would be um, 2,700 years ago. Um, we're going to begin our study. I'm just going to read three verses and then we'll do a little bit of an intro to the book. The first three verses, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Father, as we look at this book, there will be different things that we want to find, different things we want to look for, but I pray that you would guide us through the book. So the things that you would impress upon us, the things you would have us know about your son and about his return would be the things that we would learn in Jesus' name, amen. So if you got some notes at the beginning of your notes, um, that the book of Revelation was written in 95 AD on the island of Patmos. Domitian, who imprisoned John, was the emperor in Rome between 81 and 96 AD. Patmos is, we'll see on the map in a minute, 63 miles southwest of Ephesus, that is the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. And we just, as a, a time frame, Paul and Peter have been in heaven. They've been executed 28 years before John begins to write. So I'm not good with technology, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but when we see this um, entire area here is the, the church world of the Bible. Um, we can, we can, we refer to Alexandria in Sunday school this morning. This is probably the, the key place on earth where the Bibles that we have today were put together, um, the Old Testament translated into Greek, um, most of the Greek manuscripts that would have been written um, by the apostles found their way to Alexandria, so some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts um, lead to the Bible that you hold in your hands today and were copied and translated into um, Greek and then later into English in places like Alexandria, Egypt. Um, this is the, happens to be the hometown of the man who carried Jesus' cross for him so you can see how far he traveled to be at Passover in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is most familiar to us where Jesus um, finished his ministry um, and where Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world um, this is, it's hard to find a map that has everything you want to look for, but the Dead Sea is just south of Jerusalem. Um, and if we followed up here, the Sea of Galilee is right here, just to the south and east of Sidon and Tyre. Tyre was one of the places in Ezekiel 28 where Satan had a throne. Um, but this is about where the Sea of Galilee would be right here. And 70% of Jesus's ministry was around the Sea of Galilee on the on the western side of that small sea was a city called Capernaum, where most of Jesus' ministry happened, most of his miracles happened. It's where he met Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, and others. 
up in this area of Galilee, about 85 miles from Jerusalem. We see Damascus here where the Apostle Paul was stopped on that road by Jesus as he left with letters from Jerusalem to Damascus to go and arrest Christians. And Paul ended up converting and being the most unlikely convert in history as he was a persecutor of Christians. Um, when we follow up this path, we, we follow the, the spreading of Christianity. We see the city of Caesarea, which is where Philip the evangelist is from. It's where Cornelius led the centurion to the Lord. It's where pa Paul the apostle would travel before he left on missionary journeys. We come up along, we're now in Syria, and Antioch, Syria is the capital of the church. It is the sending church in the first century. While Jerusalem is under heavy persecution, the Apostle Paul's home church was Antioch, Syria, and so the, the missionary journeys which you see drawn out on this particular map would have all left from Antioch, Syria. You see that not far from Syria is a town called Tarsus, where Paul was actually born and raised, a Roman-controlled city called Tarsus. So when we see on our map, this entire area here is modern-day Turkey. If you looked at it on a map today, this was a, a highly Christian country until the late 1800s when um, Muslim extremists took over Turkey and killed all the Christians and the, destroyed all of these churches that we are familiar with from the Bible. But this is the area of Galatia. This is Paul's first missionary journey as, as he comes up to Lystra where Timothy is from and Derbe and Iconium, a different Antioch, Antioch Pisidia um, is a place where Paul went on his first journey. And then we come over into Western, or Asia Minor at the time, what is now Western Turkey. We get closer to where we're finding the book of Revelation. So Miletus is where Paul had his um, leadership council in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders who traveled there to meet with him in this town. Um, we see Ephesus, where Paul spent the longest amount of time in the Bible, three and a half years at one church. He probably founded 50 churches and he spent a lot of time here and a lot of time in Corinth over in Greece. Um, so it's not marked here, but this little island here is Patmos. Patmos um, has a lot of history that goes back thousands of years before Christ. When the Roman Empire took over basically all of Europe, they took over Patmos and made it a prison like Alcatraz, just far enough from shore that people couldn't escape easily and the, the most hated criminals were brought there from various places. And John the Apostle was abducted in the church of Ephesus and taken to Patmos um, around 89 AD, so about six years before he writes the book of Revelation, we will see in chapter one that the letter is actually delivered to seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and that's actually the exact order that they're given in the Bible. Um, I believe it is two things. God is showing us through these specific churches the history of the church, um, and we won't get into great detail in that, but it's also would have been John's mailing route. So Domitian, was one of the harshest emperors and he was assassinated by people in the Roman Empire and Nerva took over who wasn't as harsh. So in 96 AD, he released John and John went from there 63 miles northeast to Ephesus, delivered the letter to these churches in this order that we will see in the Bible. So you see most of Paul's ministry during his lifetime. You see a lot of familiar churches here. You see how close Colossae is to being in this group of churches, um, along with Laodicea, they're very close. So we won't need the map that much, and it's not critical that we understand it, um, but understand what has happened during this time. It's 95 AD, so Jesus was put on the cross at 33 AD. Um, the things that have happened since then, Paul converts at Damascus in 36 AD. Um, the gospel starts spreading out to the world. 
John, who writes this letter, his brother was executed in Jerusalem by Herod in 44 AD. So there's heavy persecution going on. Peter is imprisoned for a while in Acts chapter 12, where James, John's brother, is put to death. Um, just this time expanse where John is in Ephesus with Timothy when he is abducted there by Domitian. Um, Nero is the one who puts Paul and Peter to death, hoping to extinguish Christianity in 67 AD. And Domitian probably sees John, the last living apostle, as a key cog um, in Christianity. So there has been a ver varying a level of sternness of emperors, but Domitian was very much like Nero, and he boils John in oil, and John miraculously survives, so he puts him on this historic Alcatraz um, to live out his days in rock and coal mines and things like that. Very hard labor. John's a very old man as he's at Patmos, and when we pick up our story there, um, finding John there in 95 AD, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So we pause there for a second. People, uh, a vast majority of people say revelation is allegory. It's not real. It's not something that's actually going to happen. These are things in Revelation that are recorded through books like Daniel and the prophets of the Old Testament. If, if Revelation doesn't happen literally, then the Old Testament and much of what Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are lies. So he gives, Jesus Christ gives John this message and he says in his first sentence, these things must soon take place. So in the Greek, soon there has the Soon is one of the best English words, but it also means rapidly. So these things are going to take place, and they're going to come rapidly. And the markers throughout the Bible, as I said, that are going to precede these things are all over the world today um, in forms of mocking God and in forms of history. History, when we go back to Daniel, every empire from Daniel, 600 B.C., to the European Union is laid out exactly in the Bible and has been fulfilled exactly as Daniel wrote it. These things must soon take place. Drop down to verse 19. We will look, be there in a little bit. It is the outline of the book of Revelation. Write, therefore, what you have seen, part one, what is now, part two, and what will take place later. And again, allegory doesn't take place. Figurative things, metaphors don't take place. So we will see symbolism. We will see um, examples of both. Yeah, if you could turn the lights on, that would be great. Um, we will see things described symbolically, and we will see things described literally, and they will all be describing literal events. So if I said to you it was raining cats and dogs, you wouldn't assume that cats and dogs were falling from the sky outside, but you would know I meant it was raining very hard. Many times in Revelation, he will give symbolic pictures, which John literally sees, and then Jesus will define exactly what those things are. So that Revelation is not nearly as complicated or mystical as people this think that it is, when we get to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, this is where the rapture appears. Rapture means caught up, and John is caught up, so this is a divider when we get to part 1, which is Revelation 1, part 2, which is the church, part 3 is the things that must take place later. And John, when he is caught up, says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Heaven opens twice in the Bible. Revelation 4.1, heaven opens for the church to enter. In Revelation 19, heaven will open as Christ returns with the church to earth. But reading on there, and the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, not saying he's making a musical instrument like a trumpet, but with the, the force and the, 
the loudness of a trumpet, come up here. This is where John is caught up to heaven in his vision. And I will show you what must take place after this. So after the last verse in, in Revelation 3, you will never see the church in the Bible again until it is returning with Christ to earth. You will see the church in Revelation 4 and 5 in heaven, but you will never see it on earth again. And then in Revelation 22, as a last reminder, at the end of the book, in verse 6, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, this entire book of Revelation, the Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So as we go back to Revelation 1, that's a, that's a powerful statement in the first verse that these things that are written in the book of Revelation are things that must take place. God is in fact a liar if they do not take place literally. Reading on, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. We don't, we're not told here specifically. What we do know from the Bible is that whenever an angel delivers a message to one of God's servants in the Bible, and it is named, it is always Gabriel. So Gabriel comes to Daniel multiple times. Gabriel comes to Mary when she's going to conceive Christ. Gabriel comes to Zechariah when John the Baptist is going to be born. So he would be a likely candidate um, for his angel. But imagine this, you've been put in this horrible place. They've already tried to kill you. Peter and, um, John, or Peter and Paul have been in heaven for 28 years and John is thinking about his Lord and suddenly an angel appears in the middle of this prison on this dark place on earth. John, I have a message for you. It's from Jesus Christ. He wants you to write these things down. And John will begin to write them. Verse 2, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, that's what Gabriel brought, and it is the testimony of Jesus Christ. If we looked at Revelation chapter 19 for just a second, in verse 10, you don't have to turn there, I can read it to you, where John falls at his feet to worship. But this is an angel in this case. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So we can know that the one speaking in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 that Selah read is Jesus speaking. Because the spirit of prophecy itself, whether it's the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, is the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is literally giving his testimony, past, present, and future, as we look at the book of Revelation, verse 3, there's a double blessing that will come to us simply through opening this book and reading it and reading it aloud. There are seven Beatitudes in the Gospels. Most people don't know there are also seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation, and this is the first one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So what does it mean to, first of all, read aloud is pretty straightforward. Open up the book of Revelation and read it. There is no book in the Bible that gives the testimony of Jesus Christ like the book of Revelation. So we begin with the testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, Revelation, the, the Greek word apocalypsis, um, which we get apocalyptic things from, um, which simply means the appearing, the, the manifestation or the revealing, the, the revelation of Christ. So it is this picture in the Greek word where it's like you're pulling back a curtain on 
It could be a statue today or something, but today in, John, in Revelation, you're pulling back the curtain and it's Jesus Christ and all his glory giving his testimony. That's what the book of Revelation reveals to us. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia that we looked up earlier on the board there, these seven, what is now modern-day Western Turkey churches, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a description of Christ in the Bible right here. It's a description of God the Father, the always-been God, as he is described here. And from the seven spirits, seven being the perfect number. We see the seven spirits before the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. It is a description of the Holy Spirit, who is also Almighty God, before his throne. And, and we see the focus and the extensive description of Jesus Christ because it is his testimony and God the Father wants this book to be about his son. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, and ruler of the kings of the earth. He is sovereign. So of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is God the Son who rules. It is God the Son who is sovereign. Every authority on earth and in heaven answers to Jesus Christ. That's the Father's will. He is the sovereign one. He is the authoritative one. To him who loves us, John 3, 16, and has freed us from our sins, 1 John 2, 2, by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests. The only priests that walk the earth today are not wearing robes. They're Christ followers. There is one priest today, singular. We looked at that all through the book of Hebrews, the, the one in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. He has made us to be priests. What does that mean? Well, we're priests in the kingdom. Everything in the church has to do with the kingdom. Everything in the Bible has to do with the kingdom, including the church. And prophets represented God to man, prophets like John. Priests represent people to God. Well, now that the priest died on the cross, we are priests. We have Romans 5, 1 and 2. We have gained access ourselves directly to God, which makes us priests. We have direct access to his throne. So we are told in Revelation that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. We read about that in the book of Peter as he understood that as well. Um, verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Two verses. We're not done describing Christ. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. We're still not done describing him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Good verse to show someone in their Bible when they come knocking at your door and say, Jesus isn't God. Jesus Speaking here, the test, his own testimony is that he is Kyrios Theos, Lord God. He is, as we read on, who is, who was. He was never born. He didn't have a beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John says in John 1, and who is to come, and Jesus and Revelation 1.8 tells us himself he is almighty. He is fully divine. He is the exact representation of the Father as we read in um, Hebrews chapter 1. These extensive 
descriptions. We're going to look at some of them. First, he is coming on the clouds. When you see in the Bible, coming on the clouds, when you see Shekinah glory, when you see a cloud lifting a being up, that being is always Christ. That's insight. So when you're reading through the Bible and you see an angel, the angel, God's angel on a cloud, it is Christ. He is the only cloud writer. He is the only one. And we see some of that as you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. This is the primary verse in the Bible that is being referred to by the Apostle John as he is writing by the Holy Spirit. So Daniel 7 encompasses the entire book of Revelation. Daniel throughout many chapters, but Daniel 7 is in itself a sense, grand central station of prophecy in the Bible. So we have from Daniel's day, 605 B.C., to Christ's coming at the end of the tribulation, all in Daniel chapter 7. And in the vision, even before it's described, we can look at the vision here and understand clearly in verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. We will see this picture clearly in Revelation 4 and 5. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, Sovereign power, all nations and peoples and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus comes in wrath and revelation and he comes to judge the world, he's coming to set up a kingdom that will last forever. And Daniel is prophesying that. So in his vision at night, he sees this son of man coming on the clouds. When we get to Revelation 14, we'll see this description of billions of believers and angels coming in his wake with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and the armies of heaven coming down that is so large and magnificent that anywhere on the earth that you are, you can see it. It will be the most magnificent display, manifestation of God that has ever even been dreamt about. And Daniel says, I see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So every Jew, when we read through the Gospels, if, if they were an opponent of Christ, a cynic of Christ, the name that they hated the most was Son of Man. Because he's not called the Son of Man because he was born to Mary. He's called the Son of Man because he comes on the clouds of heaven in great glory when he sets up his kingdom. So when we see that term in Revelation, we want to understand who this Son of Man is. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Actually, before we leave, you probably already left Daniel. I was going to... We'll, we'll let you read that on your own, Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. People have questions, is this Christ or isn't it Christ? You read the description for yourself as you see the angel in Daniel chapter 10. It's not Gabriel, it's not Michael. Um, he's coming on the clouds and he has great glory and he swears by himself. And it is the Son of Man, the same person that Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet and said, weren't there three that I threw into the furnace? He says, there's a fourth, and it looks like a son of man. And he's right. It's Jesus Christ. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus gives really his longest teaching at one time. And it is about the, the return of Christ we laid down Matthew 24 and laid down Revelation 6. When the tribulation begins, they're mirrors of each other. And in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Luke chapter 21 and here in Mark 13, Jesus lays out 
what we know as the book of Revelation from John to Peter, Andrew, James, and John when he walked the earth the first time. And when we drop down in Mark 13 and verse 26, this is where in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is talking about the same thing John is talking about. At that time, this is Armageddon. People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man returning. People go into Matthew, Mark, and Luke and they think they're reading about the rapture. And no, they're reading about what John is writing about in Revelation. He refers to Daniel. He refers to Joel. He refers to the prophets that write about the setting up of his kingdom. Turn further in Mark to chapter 14. The next chapter and this chapter then is where Christ is arrested. And Mark makes this clearer than the other Gospels do. For three and a half years, how are we going to get rid of this guy? How can we get someone else to kill him? How can we get him to stop taking the attention away from our religion and get him out of here? And they can't. Even when they put him on trial, it's going to be Rome that has to kill him. So Jesus himself in Mark 14 opens him mouth, his mouth to give himself over to be crucified because they can't figure out how to do it on their own. So in Mark chapter 14 and verse 60, Caiaphas is speaking to Jesus and up till this point they're, they're making charges and somebody else says something and wait, you just contradicted that charge and, and then this person comes up, no, you contradicted that charge and they're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get rid of this person? And in this moment, Caiaphas gets up and he gets right in Jesus' face as if he has authority over Jesus and he says in verse 60, the high priest stood up before him and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He takes his question further than it was asked. Are you the Messiah? I am. And I will sit at the right hand of God the Father. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. I am the Son of Man. I am Daniel 7.13. I am the one that comes in all glory and sovereign power and rules over all nations and they will worship me. And I will return and I will set up a, uh, a kingdom and my dominion will never end. That's what he's saying to Caiaphas. Caiaphas knows Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The high priest tore his clothes. We do not need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him that he was worthy of death. And they run to Pilate and they say, Pilate, he says he's the king. What are you going to do about that? And Pilate says, so you're a king, are you? Jesus says, did you come up with that thought or did somebody say that to you? So you are a king then, Pilate says. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, he would put a stop to this. Pilate says, don't you realize I'm standing here with all the power to kill you or let you live? And he says, you wouldn't have any of that power if I didn't give it to you. And Pilate is scared to death. He believes him. His wife has nightmares all night long. Leave this man alone. He's who he says he is. 
But the Sanhedrin keeps saying, look, you have to answer to Caesar, Pilate. And he says he's above Caesar. What are you going to do about it? See, Jesus had intentionally done this so that Pilate would have a reason to hang him on the cross so that you and I could be in heaven someday. He orchestrated all of this. Turn back to Revelation. Actually, let's go to Acts chapter 1 on the way. As Jesus is about to go up to heaven, he is still offering the kingdom in this moment to Israel. In fact, he offers it until Stephen is stoned. And there's no Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 1. Um, Paul doesn't come on the scene until about three years later, and Paul is the only person in the Bible that, that is given the rapture to teach about. So Jesus, for 40 days, when he rises from the dead, he goes, he goes up and down the coast um, from Galilee to Jerusalem, 70-mile trip back and forth, going everywhere. 500 people, Paul says, saw him at one time preaching. He's alive. He resurrected. They're witnesses. We're still here. He rose. And during this time, he's preaching wherever he goes about coming again to set up the kingdom. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up to heaven before their eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. He left on the clouds. He's going to come back on the clouds. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white beside him, stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking here, looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, we see in Ezekiel prophesying 600 years before Christ that the glory leaves the threshold or leaves the, over the, where the ark was, where the Holy of Holy was. He goes out the threshold and then he, he goes towards the eastern gate and he walks out the gate. He goes down through the Kidron Valley. He goes up on the Mount of Olives and from the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel says, the glory of God goes up into heaven on the clouds. So the disciples are, are thinking a variety of things, and Jesus walks out of the temple courts and goes out the eastern gates and through the Kidron Valley, and he's standing in Acts chapter 1 on the Mount of Olives, and suddenly he ascends into heaven. And the angel says, why are you surprised? He's coming back the same way. So when we read Zechariah chapter 14 and he comes down for Armageddon, he lands on earth on the Mount of Olives and the earth splits in two recognizing his authority. So Jesus is prophesying what we will see in Revelation and Zechariah later as we now turn back to Revelation chapter 1. We want to also notice in these verses, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds, Daniel 7, 13, and every eye will see him. Everyone on planet earth, whatever the population is at that time, will see the return of Jesus Christ to earth at Armageddon. Even those who pierced him, I could ask the question in the general way, who put cross on the Christ? I did, you did, we did, the Romans did, the Jews did. But the ones responsible are the Jews. The Romans only did what the Jews wanted them to do. So he is quoting um, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 when he says, even those who pierced him so we won't go to Zechariah. You can look it up at your own leisure, but go to John as he's writing the Gospel of John in real time about what they're doing to him on the cross in John 14, what they're going to do. So this is the, the same time as the Last Supper. They've, John is, Jesus is extensively teaching on this night 
And John is going to dip into Zechariah chapter 12. We get to Revelation chapter 11, which is talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke in these three accounts where when you see what Daniel saw, the abomination that causes desolation set up in the temple in the middle of the tribulation, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, that's the marker. That's the middle of the tribulation. So when you see that happen, um, there are many things, we'll get to it when we get there, but among them are Michael and Satan get all of their angels and demons and have a war. Michael wins. Satan is thrown down to earth. He's going to kill every Jew. And Jesus says, when you see what Daniel said in the middle of the temple, leave, flee. So Zacharias says they do, and he says that two-thirds of them are killed. They'll probably all be in heaven because they're responding to the gospel. And Zacharias says that they will be gathered there. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says that Michael will protect them there for three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. And Zacharias says they will look down and they will be weeping like one for a lost child, an only child. The Jews will be 100% conscious of the fact that they pierced him and he is coming back. So that's what John is Jesus is anticipating in John 14, or excuse me, John 19. I told you 14, didn't I? John 19, this is around the crucifixion. John 19, verse 34. This is what is happening at the cross. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. John is continually throughout 18 and 19 saying, this was to fulfill prophecy, this was to fulfill prophecy. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. That also happens to be a good apologetic verse because every medical physician will explain to you what has happened there when a person is completely dehydrated, their body is completely given up, everything will gather in their abdomen. So the way, instead of breaking Jesus' legs, which was prophesied, um, would not happen in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 20, they stuck a spear in him, and the fluids had all gathered in his abdomen, and every doctor says that is 100% proof that Jesus was in fact dead. Verse 35, the man who saw it, that's the only one there, the only apostle at the cross, John, watching his first cousin, his best friend, his Messiah, being brutalized. And his testimony is true, John says. He knows John does, that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Chapter 20, verse 31 and 32. Verse 36, these things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So David's writing Psalm 34 that um, no matter how many troubles his servants have, the, the Lord will deliver him from them all. He will protect all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. David is just writing and the Spirit is feeding him and he's probably not even realizing at the moment that he's prophesying the cross that Jesus was the only one of the three whose legs were not broken. Verse 37, and another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Revelation 1.7 and Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 says they will do that and they will mourn for him like an only son, the only son of Revelation 12 when we get there. Back to Revelation 1. We pick it up in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom in this suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that's exactly what we're studying on Wednesday nights John is saying that that's my partnership in the gospel is suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos that's how we know where he was 
because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we read earlier in verse 2, who testifies to everything he saw, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In verse 9, he's saying, if I'd have kept my mouth shut, I wouldn't be here on Patmos. But I'm here for the suffering. I'm here for the kingdom. I'm here for the endurance in the hopes that you will believe in him because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, so Gabriel came to John on Sunday morning. John was probably worshiping God. Um, he may have been in prayer like Daniel was when Gabriel came to him. But anyway, it was on a Sunday. John is probably worshiping the Lord and suddenly an angel shows up to John's worship service. Probably not by himself. There's probably other prisoners that have been one to the Lord by then. I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So the, the voice is speaking. It has language. So it's not someone playing a trumpet. And we can keep that in mind when we think of Paul's letters to Corinth and Thessalonica. Verse 11, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we see John's personal testimony here and we see the recipients of this letter. It is for all of us, but it is written to those seven churches in John's real time. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like, there it is, a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We see this as you turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, as he sees this same Christ on his throne 600 years before Christ was born. We see these pictures all throughout. When you go to, if you do go on your own to Daniel chapter 10, look at the description that we just read and compare it to the angel riding on the cloud in Daniel chapter 10. So in Ezekiel, as his ministry begins, he sees this same individual, this, this glorious Jesus Christ. To think about John's relationship to it is, I'm the one you saw. Remember we read in John chapter 9, they stuck a spear in his side and everything came out and I watched it. So he says to John, I was dead, I'm alive. Ezekiel, Christ hasn't experienced any of that. He just sees him in all of his glory. So when we read Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and Daniel and them seeing heaven, we see how high of a place he came down from to go to the cross. So Isaiah 6 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they were covering their feet, with two they were covering their faces, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says that at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds in heaven shook, 
and it was filled with smoke. So he sees him in John 12, 41. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus. The father is glory too. But John says, what he saw was Jesus. What Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah see is Jesus. Verse 4 of Ezekiel 1, the setup for this individual. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of, of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In, in appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. We're setting the stage for this individual who is being brought into Ezekiel's sight in the vision, verse 26. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up looked like glowing metal, as it as if full of fire, just like Revelation 1, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, that like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Like John, when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice speaking. And we could go on from there, but we'll go back to Revelation. So each of these prophets see this glorious, however, however Ezekiel, however Daniel, however Zechariah, however John describes, it's grander, it's bigger. It's more majestic. John is simply, this is the best I can call it. They're all seeing this same thing, this pure white hair, this loving face, still having the scars of the, the thorns and the, and the spikes on his hands, but now fully glorified. John sees him standing there and his, his chest is like, glowing metal it's so brilliant it's like pure gold and it's on fire and he's speaking and his legs are like pillars and and burnished bronze glowing in metal just majestic beyond anything we could describe and he sees him and john is the individual he is the man who knows this person more than anyone who has ever lived Wow! And it drops him to his knees. I knew you were the Messiah. I knew you rose from the dead. I can't have ever imagined this. Everything in heaven is pointing to him. And John says, I fell face down. I didn't know what to do. And Jesus walks over puts his hand, it's okay, John, it's me, I was dead, I'm alive, I'm back, I'm here forever, write down what I tell you to write down, John says, okay, master, okay, Lord, what a glorious picture that would have been. Verse 19, then we see the outline that Jesus has him write. Notice Gabriel's not speaking now. Jesus is. After John somehow survives this appearing of his Savior, Jesus says to him, John, 
right there for what you have seen. So this first third of assignment to John is what we just described from the word of God. Jesus says, write down what you just saw. Write down in your own words, John, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what you just saw of me. It's part one. Then he says, write what is now. And what is now follows Revelation 1, and it is the church. So he writes the actual seven letters to the seven churches. So Revelation 1 through 22 is to the churches, but he has a response to each church. So he says, John, write those down now. And he begins with Ephesus in chapter 2 and verse 1. And then he says, and what must take place later. So he tells John, do your best to write down what you have just seen. And he says, John, I want you to write these now letters to these real-time 95 AD seven churches and what Jesus specifically has to say to them. And it is, it is challenging and it will challenge us as a church and we will see ourselves in these churches and the things that we need to do and then he says after that write down what must take later and when we get to chapter 4 verse 1 it begins this is what must take later so it becomes very clear what the outline is to the book of revelation and it is in this simple verse 19 verse 20 told you that a lot of the metaphors are going to describe literal things, but it's always literal that is being described. And here is one of the simple places where he saw seven stars. He saw seven golden lampstands. He has seen Jesus with them, holding them. And now Jesus explains to John exactly what they are. The mystery and the only two people essentially in the New Testament um, that give mysteries are Paul and Jesus, and it's almost always Paul, but here it is Jesus. And in both cases, it is the word of Jesus, whether it is Paul or Jesus. But a mystery is something that has been hidden in God for long ages past, but is now revealed. So before Adam and Eve, stars and lampstands were in the plan of God. So free will ensured that they needed to be the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers to the churches. And of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's a simple explanation that this um, pictorial, metaphorical picture that he sees, he sees stars and lampstands, and then he sees Jesus holding the stars, and, and here we see him walking, we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he holds them in his hand and he walks among them, that we're to understand that something we cannot see is happening, and that is that if the word of God is being correctly taught, that in this place, if, if that's happening, Jesus is here holding me while I teach. And he is walking among this church. His position, we have an omniscient father, son, and spirit. The omniscient father has a position right now. He can be everywhere, and in a sense he is everywhere, but he's seated on a throne waiting for all the enemies of Christ to be defeated. And when that happens, he, the Father, can be with us. The Spirit, who is also omnipresent, there's a sense in which there's nowhere where the Spirit isn't, but his position is to indwell believers. So the work of Christ and Christ in us is literally fulfilled through the Holy Spirit, who always does what Christ tells him to do, who always does what the Father tells him to do. And then Christ's position right now is twofold in a sense, seated at the right hand of the Father, 
exalting his authority, all the glory that we just saw John have, but his position is in Bible teaching churches, holding the teachers, and walking among the congregation. That's a pretty awesome thought if you think about it. It's, it's also a little bit terrifying. <laughs> in other words, that, you know, the things that, about me that I only know, come on, Jim. He knows everything and he's walking among us. So we begin this study. Um, we will get into the letters to the seven churches, which will also speak to us next week, Lord willing. Heavenly Father, help us to leave here with an understanding of just how awesome your son is. Just how important it is to know that he died for us and he died for every individual church. And the end of this chapter gives testimony that the church to him is everything. That's his position in the kingdom, is to build the local churches, the local lampstands. Help us to, to submit to him with joy, to realize that, that he paid for us and gave everything for us. And Lord, I pray that as we go into the afternoon that you would bless our fellowship, that Christ in us would be visible person to person as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.